Well, we are in John chapter 20, and we are looking at John's account of the resurrection. And two weeks ago, we looked at Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John, and what they were doing at the tomb and how they couldn't quite figure it out. And last week, we looked specifically at Mary Magdalene. And this week, we look at some, but not all, of the disciples who were gathered behind locked doors in fear. So we're in chapter 20. We're going to begin at verse 19. Let me read for us. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me pray for us as we go to meditate on his word. Lord Jesus Christ, there is no friend like you. What a friend you are to sinners and the lost and to the broken, even as you are the one through whom and for whom all things were made. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and yet you love to come in the midst of your people, to be with them, to enjoy them, to delight in them. We pray for that now in this time, that your spirit would be amongst us to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might be drawn to you, that we might love you more, that we might love the things that you love more, and that our feet would be quick to follow. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we read in verse 19 that it was on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, which means it was still the same day as when Mary Magdalene interacted with the resurrected Jesus. So she not only saw him, she spoke with him and she touched him. In fact, the, the text indicates or implies that he, she probably gave him a giant bear hug. As we talked about last week with Mary, John intends us to see the resurrection of Jesus not merely as the, the obvious miracle that it is, but as the beginning of the last days, which in turn means it's the beginning of the new creation, which is already here, but obviously not yet here fully. It's why, as we saw last week, John presents Jesus' tomb as a new holy of holies with the, the burial slab as the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, complete with actual cherubim flanking either side of it. So what was once exclusively the domain of the high priest, and once a year at that, has now been opened up to God's people by Jesus, our great high priest. And what's more, as, as Mary, uh, in her grief, goes looking for Jesus, she bumps into what she thinks is the gardener, not recognizing that she has actually found Jesus himself, the new Adam. Well, in our passage, John continues to emphasize new creation by using language from Genesis 1. It was the evening of the first day of the week, with evening and morning signifying the completion of a day. Now, if you'll remember, the first day of the creation week was when God created the light. 
and separated it from the darkness. And as John says in chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, that light, though you see it all throughout his ministry, has come to its fullness in the resurrection. So obviously, John's telling us the historical facts of when Jesus appeared to his disciples. It was the evening of the same day as when Mary met Jesus too. But I think because John's gospel is more of a theological account than it is, strictly speaking, merely a historical one, he's deliberately trying to get his readers to make a connection to that first creation week. He does that right from verse 1 of his gospel, by the way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, that's just riffing on verse 1 of the Bible. That same Word that God the Father created through, who He spoke through in Genesis 1, is the same Word that took on flesh and through His death and resurrection has brought forth new creation. It's why, too, Jesus says in Revelation 21, Behold, I am making all things new. That work of recreation is not strictly a future action. It started in earnest with his resurrection. So we read in the next phrase of verse 19 that the doors were locked where the disciples were gathered and Jesus came and stood among them. In Luke's account, Jesus instantly stood among them, giving the impression that he appeared to them out of nowhere. And I think John's account has the exact same sense. So it's not as though Jesus uh, came to the building where they were staying and he tried the door and found it was locked. So he picked the lock and walked in, which surprised the disciples because they didn't know Jesus could do that sort of thing. No, not at all. Someone suddenly appeared to all of them right in the midst of them, which I think we can all agree is one of the most unusual things a group of people might experience together. And as mind-blowing and perhaps terrifying as that might have been, it's not merely an angel that showed up, as if there's anything as merely an angel. It's the Lord of Lords. It's Jesus himself who showed up. Unlike people in our times, first century Jews didn't question the existence of the spiritual realm as reality. They, they weren't put off by the notion of angels or demons or that there is more to reality than meets the eye. I mean, after all, they had witnessed Jesus do unbelievable things. Even so, like we talked about last week, even though they, they accepted the doctrine of the resurrection, witnessing Jesus in their midst would have been shocking, to put it mildly. And my guess is that, that his appearance, though it's not described here, was probably on par with the transfiguration or what Moses experienced in the burning bush or, or Paul on the road to Damascus. So like the prophets of the Old Testament, they had a vision of God, which was never merely an appearance, like say an apparition of some kind. No, no, they saw with their own eyes, in their own bodies, they saw the glory of God show up in Jesus Christ. Now, as a quick aside, I had a whole section of the sermon, but I didn't want to go on too long. As a quick aside, everyone set apart as a prophet in the Old Testament had a vision of God too. Every single one. Whether like Moses on Sinai or the burning bush 
or Ezekiel, for example, on the banks of the Chabar uh, Canal in Babylon. Well, so too his disciples. It's why they were his official witnesses and why the church from the beginning has accepted their writings as the very word of God. Well, this moment, well, it raises questions, of course, uh, about who or what Jesus has become after his resurrection. And that question is, is somewhat addressed in the very next passage with Thomas, who acts like a uh, thoroughgoing empiricist demanding physical proof of Jesus' resurrection. And we're going to talk about that next week and take a little bit of time to talk about the resurrected body because Paul talks about that too. Even so, to help his disciples understand what's going on, Jesus showed them his hands and his side. That is, the places where he was wounded for our transgressions. And it's worth asking why he continued, and still does to this day, to carry these places, these wounds, these, these scars perhaps on his body. Now, a, a lot of ink has been spilled on that question, but I personally think that these are trophies of his love that he likes to carry. It's a way of him saying, here's how much I love you, look. And it's just like how every mother carries pains and scars from giving birth to her child. A mother endures trauma. A mother endures trauma, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, for the sake of her child. I know I've watched it. And it's not just in that moment, it continues on. So even as Jesus compared his future suffering on the cross in John 16 to what mothers endure in childbirth, I think Jesus endured far more for his children. And in response to his hands inside, John says the disciples were glad. Now, I think that's the translator saying the word glad. And that you, that's a fair translation, and I'm sure he's much better at Greek than I am, but I don't know how, how often you use the term glad. But to me, it's a very tame word. So, for example, I'm glad when my water payment goes through. Yay. Right? And the term in the Greek does mean glad, but it really what you, you get there is full of joy. Is, is what is after. It's, it's uh, kara. It's, it's meant to be uh, this ecstatic outpouring of joy. And that's what you have here. The disciples were ecstatic. It's like what David sings in Psalm 30. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. There's the image. From weeping and grief into dancing. And I don't mean the slow white people kind of dance. Right? You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. That's an outpouring of joy, of, of just being full of the Spirit with God. And this, of course, as, as we saw months ago, is exactly what Jesus told them would happen. In John 16, he said he would turn their mourning into joy and no one would be able to take it away from them. This is all before his arrest and his final teaching to them. So it's kind of like when your favorite team, who looks like they are going to lose, like it's, it's inevitable, they're going to lose this, but they hit the unexpected home run in the bottom of the ninth or on 
Third down, they connect with the 40-yard bomb in overtime. Or they hit the go-ahead three to ice the game with two seconds to go. Only, that's sports. This is so much better. So what was just a few minutes prior to seeing Jesus, just this feeling of fear and dread and hopelessness that they had been living with for days. In a moment, it was all turned to joy. Well, that's what Mary experienced last week when Jesus called her by name. And that's what his disciples experienced when they saw his hands and his side. But before they were joyfully ecstatic, it does say they were, they were fearful. In verse 19, we read that the disciples were in that locked room, presumably in hiding, for fear of the Jews. And I think this is a reasonable fear to have. Typically, men like the disciples would have been rounded up and crucified alongside their leader. That's just how it worked. And remember, crucifixion was a punishment reserved for slaves and violent revolutionaries. And of course, Jesus was neither of those things. And Jesus was innocent of all charges. And both Pilate and the Jewish leadership knew it, but were willing to do it anyway. Even so, it was reasonable for the disciples to fear that the Jewish leadership might turn their eyes towards them too, and why not? But as we read months ago in John 17 and 18, Jesus had guarded them all throughout his ministry. He had guarded them and kept them from the evil one. And he prayed for that in his high priestly prayer before he was let off. And even at his arrest, he commanded the arresting force to let his disciples go, which they did which tells you that Jesus was actually in control of the situation. Now, John, in turn, followed Jesus all the way to the cross, presumably without the fear of being crucified, too. So it shows you they were actually free, but they didn't feel that way to them. So like with most things God commands or he teaches or he promises, we often fail to believe him, even when we have good proof or good evidence that what he is telling us is true. We fail to believe that what God says is actually good for us, let alone that God has our best interests at heart. We doubt his ways, that they are the best ways. And when we are walking through hard moments and you know, here the disciples believe that they are truly in the valley of the shadow of death, well, we don't trust that God actually has us. It's why that, that phrase that you sometimes hear, God is good all the time, may be the boldest, most counterintuitive, and most indispensable confession of faith there is. And we really struggle to believe it, like his disciples in this moment. That's why Jesus' first words to them are so critical. He says, peace be with you. Now, Jesus is not saying, hey, chill out, man. Just relax. Things are fine. I mean, I guess there's a sense of that in there. But no, he's saying, you have reconciliation with the Father through me. I have you. The world has been set right. See, despite their unfaithfulness, despite their abandonment of him, Jesus has not abandoned them. That's key. They abandoned him. He did not abandon them. 
He has not waited for them to get things right or to find a way to redeem themselves or to show how much faith and courage they have in the face of so much fear and, and hard times. No. Like with Mary, he came to them bearing shalom. And shalom, that's the word peace there, is, is actually the goal of salvation. It's peace with God and with each other and with God's good creation. So shalom is the world set right. Shalom is at the heart of new creation. And we don't bring about shalom. As every society that has tried to create utopia on its own, and ours is trying to do that now too, shows you this is something that man, sinful man, cannot create. We cannot do this. This is something that comes entirely from God. That's why the movement of Scripture is always God bringing peace to his people, shalom to his people. It's always God condescending, bringing heaven to earth. And you know what? We see that in miniature in John 20. Jesus comes to Mary in her blindness and calls her by name. He comes to these disciples in their fear and offers them his peace. Next week, we will come, he will come to Thomas in, in his doubts and offer himself as evidence of the truth. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave the world a sevenfold plan, complete with instructions and a map, and then waited on humanity to get it together. No. God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world that whosoever wanted life with him could have it. And like he told the Samaritan woman of John 4, Jesus went looking. Jesus went looking for people to worship his Father in spirit and in truth. In every other religion, every other religion, it's humanity's search for God. In Christianity, God goes looking for humanity. Well, in verses 21 and 22, John essentially brings together the Great Commission and Pentecost really all in one move. And because we're so used to a particular kind of history writing that thinks uh, exact kind of beat by beat chronology is the only credible sort of historical account, thank you so-called German scholarship, we tend to struggle with passages like this one when we compare it against other gospel accounts. Now, John's not concerned with giving an exact chronology. He knows. You can go read Luke or Matthew for that if you want it, and that's great. Now, he's interested, as we've been saying, in the theology of the events and what it all means. And so he sometimes conflates events or goes out of order in order to point out certain things. And he's not the only ancient or even so-called modern writer that does that. So Jesus repeats Peace be with you. And then, like Mary, he gives them a job to do. So just as God the Father sent Jesus into the world to make his name known, and by the way, that was Adam and Eve's call. That's what they were created to do and be. And in turn, this was Israel's calling too, to make God's name known. So now his disciples, and by extension us, are to make God's name known through his Son, in the power of the Spirit. To make God's name known is more than what I'm doing now, as in critically important as it is. 
It's more than the occasional evangelistic effort with our neighbors and family. It's more so like what we see with Israel in the Old Testament or with the various churches in the New Testament. It's living out every moment of our lives in light of God, knowing that we are already part of new creation. It's why Paul repeats over and over again that we are citizens of heaven. And that means we are like ambassadors, or as Peter talks about it, resident aliens, or like an advanced team that has the privilege of living out the future redeemed world that we see in Revelation 21 in this present evil darkness. Christians are evidence of the new creation already at work. And it's, it's kind of like what uh, Professor Michael Feigl recently said. He says, we have the privilege of loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, opinions, perspectives, policies, practices, and politics. We don't want to escape our times. We want to be a light in our times because Jesus has called us to this, this life. And John tells us that Jesus then breathed his spirit into the disciples. So this is not only uh, fulfillment of what he promised them before his arrest, it's again a foundational part of, of new creation and it calls our attention again back to Genesis, in particular Genesis 2. So just as God breathed life into Adam and made him a living creature, which by the way, God is only described as doing that activity with his image bearers, so now Jesus breathes his spirit into his disciples, making them fully alive to God. So while we are, are waiting on the full redemption of our hearts and our minds and our bodies, we already have God's spirit who is at work within us, uniting us to him. So we are already part of eternal life. You already have it now. Again, when Paul calls us new creations, he's not being figurative. He's literal. He's very much literal. Now, with verse 23, Jesus says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So here's what this does not mean. Uh, the disciples did not replace Jesus or, or take on his mantle, like say how Elisha took on the mantle from Elijah. So, so they, they did not have the authority to do what we see Jesus doing in the Gospels, that is telling people, I forgive you, as if they were God himself. That's why, for example, in a few moments, I will tell you that God's forgiveness is available to you, that in Christ you are forgiven, but it's, it's not me who is forgiving you. That, that doesn't matter very much. It's Christ who has promised to forgive. No, it's like what we see in the book of Acts with the pronouncement of forgiveness through Christ and the pronouncement of judgment on sin for those who will not repent and turn to him. You see that in virtually every single sermon in the book of Acts. So, for example, Peter's Pentecost sermon does both of those things. So he, on the one hand, did not hesitate to tell the Jewish crowds that life was available in Jesus if they wanted it. Even as he, it's incredible, he stone cold told that Jewish crowd that the house of Israel crucified 
Jesus. You want to talk about going from fear to joy and not fearing losing that joy? That's Peter. The resurrection changed Peter. And in response to his preaching, some were cut to the heart and they believed and they turned to Jesus and they found life. Some thousands that day. Still others did not. Still others did not repent and they in fact doubled down like the Sanhedrin in their rejection of Jesus. So my hope is that, that my preaching, like Peter's, is biblically faithful and points you to Jesus. So that means sometimes it's going to be encouraging, and I hope it is. I hope uh, the preaching that comes from this pulpit, whether it's from me or from some other man, nurtures you and how good our, our God is. But at the same time, there's going to be times where it's, it's because of our sin and our sinful desires, it's going to be offensive. It's going to make you angry sometimes. I know good preaching has made me angry sometimes. And both are necessary for our life. You have to see that God is for you, that he wants life for you, that he loves you so much that he won't let you continue in your sin. See, it is God's kindness that he pursues you and seeks you out and continually says to you, peace be with you. It is his kindness that he speaks the truth to you. It is his kindness that offends you and calls you out. It is his kindness that delights in our repentance. Let me say that again. It is his kindness that delights in our repentance and does not hesitate to forgive. And in turn, it is his kindness and his love for the world, including our neighbors, our friends, our families, our enemies, that he has called us to faithfully, not arrogantly, not angrily, not as jerks, but to faithfully live out our calling to make his name known wherever he has placed us in this world. And you should take it that, that where he has placed you must be important because he has put his spirit on you and because he has loved you and he calls you by name and says, you are mine. So where he has put you and the calling he has given you matters. And it's like as, as Thomas Watson once put it. He said, Christians should be walking Bibles. Christians should be walking Bibles. So our great privilege is to walk in the path of Jesus and be an open book about him. Let me pray for us as we enter into the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. You have given us such privilege, such grace, such mercy, such a gift that we are already your family, that we enjoy eternal life right now, that we are your sons and daughters right alongside Jesus, and that he is our friend even as he is our Lord and our King. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of making your name known. May we not take this privilege in vain or for granted. It is such a good life you have given to us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.